This is Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the richness of it. We thank you for the the breadth and the depth of it that you have given us, not just the gospel in, in propositional truth statements, but you've told us the long story of your redemption from the very beginning all the way through to the very end so that we could have certainty that you are in control of all history that you are causing all events to work out according to your decree, according to your plan, Lord, and that we can know in that that you have decreed to bring us into your kingdom and that you are doing that now so that we can wait in sureness and in safety uh, and even in comfort and joy, Lord. So we pray that you would help us to see those things. We pray that you would help us to see the beauty of the ordinary life. And we pray that you would help us to see Jesus and what he's done for us so that we can wait in that, ensure in certain hope. We pray, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Getting your expectation right about certain things can save you from a lot of grief. Amen. 
If you're a young person, you know the infamous DTR, the time when you define the relationship, which can save you a lot of heartache. If one person's expecting one thing and another person's expecting another, you can be very disappointed if those expectations don't play out. Uh, in life, it's the same thing. In life, uh, getting your expectations right about what life is really all about can be really helpful. There is, for example, huge cultural myth right now around uh, the idea of productivity, that fulfillment in life comes from constantly getting better, faster, smarter, more efficient, and just life hacking your way into a superhuman you. Huge industry, tons of books about this stuff. How do I know? I've got, I've got them all. I totally buy into this. Totally catches me, this kind of stuff. Uh, the myth appeals to me because I want life to be like that. I want it to be this nonstop adrenaline rush of excitement and accomplishment. So much so, there's some people that take that to a whole nother level. People we call adrenaline junkies who engage in like dangerous activities in, in sports. I won't mention any names here. Uh, because of the rush that it gives them, it creates this excitement in life that keeps getting, you know, that, that they're able to tap into. Uh, and the problem with that, though, is that there's a real thing where if you tap into those adrenal glands and pump out all that cortisol and adrenaline so much so you can fatigue those organs and crash hard, and there's a real thing called burnout. There's even like a sub-cottage industry right now and all those productivity guru books about how to recover from the burnout that their original books sent you spiraling into. <laughs> Crazy. Ah. And so with those kind of cultural trends, it's not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising that oftentimes uh, those ideas kind of, those cultural ideas seep into the church. We, are, we live in a bubble in the culture, and we're constantly, you know, the syncretism, what we call syncretism with the culture, uh, absorbing the ideas of the greater culture is always something that happens in the church, and that's what happens with us. There are a lot of people who think that the spiritual life about church, about the Christian life, is the same kind of thing, bigger, better, stronger, faster, more holy, more powerful, more conversions, deeper prayer, greater experiences. This Sunday is going to be the most epic encounter with God that you've ever experienced until next Sunday, and then that Sunday is going to be the most epic experience with God and encounter that you've ever had until everything crashes down around us and the spiritual adrenal fatigue sets in. And so it can be helpful to have right expectations about the spiritual life. What does the Bible say about that? You know, sometimes the spiritual life is super exciting. That's true. But most of the time, it's pretty ordinary. At least it looks ordinary. It's going to work, coming home, taking care of your kids, loving your wife, hanging out, um, eating leftovers, paying your taxes, trying to get the job done, uh, you know, haggling with the contractor, you name it. Most of life is like that, and all of that is part of God's perfect design. And in the midst of all that, in, uh, in the midst of all that, that long, ordinary of life, God has given us a long story of redemption and some encouragement along the way to help us through the ordinary of life. 
And that's what we're going to talk about today. That God has given us the long story of redemption. He's given us some encouragement along the way to help us through the ordinary of life. So let's look at that one part of the time. The long story of redemption. Neuroscience tells us there's at least three different kinds of memory. There's the memory of facts, like you remember that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. You can remember the facts that all the uh, stories in the Old Testament are pointing towards the reality of Jesus. And then there's another kind of memory that uh, are, you, remember, you remember life events. For example, you might remember the moment you figured out that all those Old Testament stories are really not moral lessons, but they're pointing to Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. I remember that moment in Gospel and Acts class in seminary when that fact hit me like a wrecking ball from behind. I was like, it was like, you know, revolutionary. Sometimes you can like remember an important like conversation, a meaningful conversation that you had with someone. You remember the place, you remember the smell, you remember what you ate, but you don't remember anything about the conversation. <laughs> and sometimes you can remember the facts of a conversation you had with somebody, but you can't remember where you had it or when you had it. And that shows us that those are two different kinds of memory. Well, there's a third kind of memory. The third kind of memory, usually we call it muscle memory, which is a misnomer. It's not, your muscles aren't like holding on to memory, but what it is, it's, it's, it's the idea that the repetition of movement helps your brain to memorize and internalize things in a way that makes them part of you. It makes it natural. It makes, uh, it makes you able to do those activities uh, or it enables you to call to mind those things without any effort at all. It happens through repetition over and over and over again. Each rep, you might not feel like it's doing anything. You might be at the gym slogging away uh, and might not feel like much, but over the course of time, over the course of years, it sinks things into our, the marrow of our existence and into our minds in a way that regular memory doesn't. And in God's wisdom, he has given us and he has He's given us revelation. He has disclosed himself and disclosed what he is doing in all three of those ways. Right? The first two are obvious, right? We have uh, the drama of redemption in the story of, of, of the Bible and the doctrine that we pull out of it, the facts. We have the, our experience with that doctrine in real life. Uh, but we also have the third part. We have that third part in the power of of ritual, which is a lot like muscle memory. And that's what we see happening here in these first few verses. Listen, listen, listen. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to the to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What is happening there? In that story, Luke has, has really conflated two different rituals that were part and parcel of the fabric of life of Israel. The first one was the purification, which was Mary's purification. In Leviticus chapter 12, 
it says that any woman who went through childbirth at, after 33 days, at seven days or eight days the child was baptized, and then 33 days later, she needed to come to the temple and, and, become, and be ritually purified from that birth. And that sounds, some, maybe that sounds really strange to us. There's a lot of things in, in Leviticus that sound really strange. Uh, and, I, you know, it was super strange to me till I was, like, forced to teach through Leviticus in China one year. And I had to outline the book. I had to make a simple outline of the book, and it hit me like a ton of bricks that the first half of Leviticus is about, is about disease uh, and, and bleeding and all things that, like, all the things that spoke to or, or looked like or symbolized death and disease. And the whole first part of the book is physical death and disease must be purified. And then right in the middle, it like turns this corner and starts talking about sin and about offense and how those things must be purified. And the whole point is that just like physical disease and anything that looks like death, like heavy bleeding, blood loss, anything that looks like death must be purified. Sin does to our spirit the same thing that death and disease does to our flesh, and both need to be purified. That's Leviticus in a nutshell, right? Anybody ever witnessed a birth, right? If you ever had kids, birth is a bloody mess. Amen, ladies? It's shocking. First time you have a kid, you're like, <laughs> afraid, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, uh, it's a bloody mess. It's not because the birth made the woman impure in any reason, it's that the blood, that much blood loss speaks of death and God used it as a picture uh, that just as physical disease needs to be cured and cleansed in the same way sin affects our spirit and needs to be cleansed and purified. And so Mary, 33 days after the birth of Jesus, is showing up at the temple to be ritually purified from that. And how? How are we ritually purified from the sin? That's the next. The next ritual is part of that. And this is just a part of a huge complex of ritual in ancient Israel. But the second ritual is the... Is uh, it's called the redemption of the firstborn son. Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. And again, in the Old Testament, right after the Passover, how did, how, did, uh, how did Israel finally get out of Egypt? What did God do? God sent the angel of death. This is a real thing. It doesn't get any more metal than this, kids. It's in the Bible. God sends the angel of death to come into Egypt uh, and kills all of the firstborn of Egypt, and only those houses that have the blood of the lamb on the door are spared. And so in that ritual, and right after that ritual, God comes to Moses and says, all the firstborn of Israel belong to me, and you must redeem all of the firstborn sons by presenting to me a lamb in their place, right? Again, part of a bigger, bigger complex of, of ritual that was all pointing towards one reality, which was this, that by the death of the firstborn, God's people would be released from slavery. And it's kind of a double picture, because all the firstborn of Israel must be redeemed by a lamb. And so here, 
Listen, the power of ritual at work for 1,500 years, 1,500 years, families in Israel are going through the motions. They're coming into the temple. They're doing the purification. They're offering up, you know, the child to be, uh, to be redeemed. They're bringing the lamb, or in Mary and Joseph's case, they're bringing two pigeons because they're so poor they can't afford a lamb. Probably Mary and Joseph coming in, like, going through the motions, right? But they'd seen it their whole lives. Their parents had done it. Their aunts had done it. Their friends had done it. There's a huge, probably a bunch of families there all doing it. And each one of those little movements probably didn't do a whole lot. But when you put them all together for 1,500 years, God was working into the marrow, into the existence of his people Israel, that by the death of the firstborn son, they would be delivered from slavery to sin, and that their sons, their firstborn sons, needed to be redeemed by the death of the Lamb. Just barreling, moving it into their conscience, right? And of course, the great irony in the story is, here's Mary presenting Jesus to be redeemed, and yet he is the one that all of that ritual is pointing to. He's the one who is going, he's the one son of Israel, who even though he was redeemed at his birth, eventually goes on to die anyways as the lamb, as the redemption for all the other sons and for all the other people, including us. Now, we don't have, like Charlie said in the beginning, we don't have all these rituals anymore. Now, it, uh, part of the, he was, Charlie nailed it in, the, in, that, in that law reading. Part of the problem in the early church, especially for, to the Hebrews, was that, the worship of ancient Israel was visceral. It was a bloodbath. It was just animals coming into the temple, and, and, and it was very graphic, very present, ah, intense, right? Then we get into the New Testament, and all that's gone. And yet what we do have, what God has given us, are the sacraments. Those are our rituals. We have baptism, and we have the Lord's Supper, which we do every Every week, right? And every time we do it, you know, every time we do it, let me be honest with you. Sometimes I'm doing the Lord's Supper and I'm a little almost moved to tears. It's hard to get through, especially the cup part. I don't know why, but whenever I say the precious blood of our Lord Jesus, not whenever, but often, it almost moves me to tears as the reality hits me. But sometimes I'm doing the Lord's Supper and I'm watching the clock. I'm thinking, man, I just want to get home and take a nap. Or I'm hungry. Or the sermon didn't go well and I just want to go hide in the closet for a week. You know, you know what I'm saying? Or I'm not emotionally engaged. It's not exciting. Does my emotional response to the Lord's Supper make it more effective? Does my perceived excitement of a spiritual event or a service or a devotion or a prayer or any event whatsoever in the spiritual life, uh, especially Lord's Supper, does my perception of its excitement change its efficacy? It doesn't. Why? I mean, it's not us. We are not, we don't have, we don't have to work ourselves up into a frenzy to receive the power of God. That power is there. And the point is, it's, it's like muscle memory. It's not, 
maybe each Lord's Supper, if you, in, you, you take it, you know, you, you separate it, you atomize it into just one. Most of it sucks. You get up in the morning and you, you, you start like getting, taking care of your, your to-do list. You take care of this appointment. I get up. I got to go to the gym. I got to work out. I got to train these guys. I got to take care of these bills. I got to, you know, watch my kid. And you're like, you're going through the everyday motion of like taking care of these mundane things until you get, and the goal is to get to the end of the day. And, and interspersed with that, he's like, there's some fun stuff. True story. I, could, I couldn't have made it up. I, I stopped him. I said, brother, you know what you just did? You just, you just, you, that's the thesis of my sermon this Sunday. <laughs> He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, my sermon, thesis. It's most of the time life sucks and sometimes it's fun. <laughs> He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, I'm not kidding. And I'm like, not only is it the thesis of my sermon, it's the thesis of my life. <laughs> He's like, what? I'm like, no, really. I get up in the morning, and I got to drag myself through my morning devotion. Half the time, I don't feel like doing it. And then I got this counseling meeting I got to do. And I'm like, you know, I'm super, you know, usually kind of depressed in the morning. I don't want to see anybody. And then I got to work on the sermon. And then I got to have the staff meeting. And then I got to do this admin stuff. And then, I, you know, I'm working, just looking forward again to the end of the day when I can read with my kids and hang out. And it's like, that's my life. And then in the, in the midst of that, in the mix of that, every once in a while, it's punctuated with these really fun things. People get saved. They come to the Lord. I have a soup. I have a devotion that just knocks me off my feet. Uh, you know, a service, a service that's particularly meaningful. Uh, but most of the time, that's it, man. You know, Mary and Joseph probably weren't expecting that. They probably weren't expecting to get back to days standing out in front of the Nazareth Home Depot looking for work. Impossible task of keeping the house clean with an army of kids, destroying it right on your heels. Dealing with the neighbors, dealing with the in-laws, dealing with all the ridiculous government nonsense, fighting with Joseph, the drama. You know what I'm talking about. You know, life, pretty ordinary, mixed in with some affliction, mixed in with some joy, and that's just how it is, right? Not what I expected as a new Christian, not, and the problem is that it's just a lot of disappointment comes out of that. Either the spiritual adrenal glands finally give out, you can't keep that level of excitement going, and you crash. It's been happening, I'm not kidding, it's been happening since the very earliest days of the church, right after the last apostles died out and the miracles kind of slowed down, uh, people got antsy. They're like, wow, what is this? We need to, we need to, there's a whole, there's a whole early cult of of people that tried to keep that excitement going in, in various ways. And, and so we do it too. And what, you know, the, the big realization, the takeaway comes out of this is the realization that I often, and maybe you do this too, I judge the value or efficacy of spiritual, of my spirituality based on two things for the most part. Number one, it's emotional intensity. Or number two, it, the excitement of it. 
And when I do that, what am I doing? I'm measuring all the entire spiritual life against those mountaintop moments, those, those punctuated uh, moments of spiritual intensity that God throws in the mix every once in a while to encourage me. And I get to the point where I, I need that, I want that, I expect that all the time, and that's how I judge how I'm doing in the spiritual life. And that's just not what we see in the Bible, right? What we see in the Bible is a lot different. Long periods of ordinary. In the, in the, and this is what's fascinating to me. In the course of the life of the church, there's that pattern. And in the course of each of our individual lives, there's that same pattern. One of our pastors, uh, Alfred Poyer, he says that God deals with the church in the course of centuries. And he deals with Christians in the course of decades. That takes a lot of pressure off. First of all, you're like, God, okay. I don't have to, you know, become perfectly holy this year. I can wait till next year. And over the, God is working on me slowly over the course of decades. And here's the thing. Those big, long spurts, those big, long halls of ordinary, that's not where, like, no, it's not where nothing's happening. It's not where God is absent. It's not where we're just waiting for the next. That's where, really, that's where all the worthwhile and beautiful things of life happen. When we're in those long stretches of ordinary and it's all about hanging out and being with your wife and your family, it's giving us all these opportunities to, to die to ourselves and to love one another, to care for one another, uh, to practice all of those character things that God is building into us of loving one another and considering others more important than ourselves. It all happens in community and it all happens in those big, long stretches of just being at home. There's a lot of beautiful that happens in that, right? We are, as a family, we are right now dead center of our yearly uh, Lord of the Rings marathon viewing. And we just finished watching Tale of Five Armies. Uh, and next to, next to the part where Dane calls uh, Thranuil a, a great pointy-eared princess, the next best part of the whole movie is when right after Thorin has died and Thorin tells Bilbo, you know, if more people loved home more than gold, the world would be a merrier place. Right after that scene, there's this scene where, where, where Bilbo is just sitting on these steps and in the, on Raven Hill, there's orc body parts like in piles all around him, the smoke from the battlefields rising up behind him. And he's just sitting there quiet and Gandalf comes and sits next to him and breaks out his pipe and just and lights his pipe and looks at him and kind of smiles and they don't say a word. And we thought like, what is that? What are they trying to say there, right? It's like bringing like in, in the midst of all this chaos and excitement and glory and fighting and battle. Here's Bilbo like enjoying like the beautiful ordinariness of life. And here's Gandalf, the wizard, just coming and sitting next to him and f affirming that. He's like, he's like, you got it right, bro. These guys got it wrong. You have it right. And he doesn't need to say a word. You know? 
And that's what our lives are like. It's long stretches of ordinary. Sometimes it's super exciting. Most of the time, it's not. But even in the midst of all that, in the midst of these long stretches of ordinary, God has given us the long story of redemption, the history of redemption in the Old Testament, all of God's amazing acts in the past, the moments of intensity and showing his goodness and faithfulness and his promises to people as they go through their long stretches of ordinary. And we have the witnesses of Jesus in the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament who have written down and the Holy Spirit brings us those witnesses as testimony that Jesus is the one who all of those rituals point forward to. And we have the rituals of the sacraments. We have the Lord's Supper every week. And God is working in it, in and through that little bit at a time to build into our spiritual muscle memory our true identity. Uh, and that is that we are children of the King, that Christ has bought our redemption for us. We are heirs of a new kingdom that's coming, coming soon. And nothing of that can ever change. It's been guaranteed to us. And ultimately, we learn over time that as we sit in those long stretches of ordinary, that it's the consistency of that quiet presence and a deep gratitude for who God is and what he's done. That's really better than all the excitement anyways. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for your actions in the world. We thank you that you have given us the Bible as a true picture of life. It's not just a giant collection of hero myths and legends, but it tells the story of other people just like us living through the long ordinary of regular life, waiting, waiting patiently and faithfully for the redemption of our bodies, our adoption as sons into the new creation. And so, first of all, God, we thank you that you have made it super clear that Jesus has won that victory for us, that we don't have to fight or strive to win it for ourselves. That is a sure and certain reality, and all what you have called us to do is to wait and to stand and to be witnesses in that, in the world, as we wait for that sure and certain day when you rescue us. So we pray that you would help us to do that, Lord, to know for certain that we belong to you and to wait patiently for your coming. And in that hope, we pray that you would make us light in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.